And uh, for those of you who've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in, uh, in the middle of a series. And the series that we're doing is called Credo. Again, Credo is a Latin term that means I believe. And uh, part of the reason we're doing this um, series called Credo is uh, that there were several creeds that were developed early on in the church. Uh, the Apostles' Creed was developed in the first century, right? And, uh, and then the Nicene Creed was developed in 325, right? So they were both very early in the life of the church. The reason these creeds developed is because um, certain heresies arose that attacked a core principle uh, of what Jesus taught or a core principle of Christianity. And so the church said, oh, we didn't really know we needed to explain that, but apparently we do, right? And so in the Apostles' Creed, part of what they were doing was they were saying, oh, by the way, Jesus um, was really human. Like I know that in a Gnostic context back in the first century, people had a really hard time believing that the divine could actually really enter into humanity. And, and so the Apostles' Creed, part of what it did was affirm the fact that Jesus was truly human. The Nicene Creed, again, which was a couple hundred years later, uh, really um, came about in opposition to a man named Arius, who basically questioned Jesus' divinity. And so Arius basically said, well, you know, Jesus was probably just a created being. So God created Jesus and then uh, co-created the world with Jesus as a created being. And part of what happened was, is that the bishops of the early church there in 325 AD said, whoa, hold on, that is not what we've ever taught in Christianity. We have to stand up in opposition to this, and we need to get together and determine what it is that we believe. And so part of what the Nicene Creed was, did was they affirmed Jesus' uh, divinity, right? And so both of these creeds, both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, ultimately ended up affirming both Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity. And came up with this idea that, again, had been true from the very beginning. It's what Jesus taught. It's what God taught. It's even what the Old Testament hinted at, is that Jesus was a human, but he was also divine. That, uh, that God had written himself into the human story as a character entering into that story as a real human being, physically, emotionally, intellectually, volitionally. Does that make sense? It's this amazing and scandalous truth and mystery. We're going to unpack just a little bit of that uh, as we jump into um, this idea, particularly of Jesus' uh, humanity today. Now, the last three weeks, we took a look uh, first and foremost at the Apostles' Creed affirmation that uh, God is a father, right? So you've heard the Chris Tomlin song, Good, Good Father. And, uh, and the idea being there that um, whatever it is that you've thought about God in the past, if you thought he's Thor with a hammer, uh, or if you thought he's sort of a benign grandfather nodding off on the eternal throne of heaven, he's neither of those, but he is an active father lovingly engaged in the lives of his children, both the ones that wander away from him and the ones that try to bribe him through good behavior. He says, I'm your dad. You don't need to approach me either of those ways. And then we talked about the fact that Jesus um, Christ is our Lord. He's our master. It's not enough just to go, hey, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. Done. Mission accomplished. But ultimately that Jesus also has the authority to tell us what's true and the authority to tell us how to live our lives. Last week, we looked at Jesus' divinity. And again, this morning, we'll look at Jesus' humanity. Before we do this, let's jump in. Um, let's spend a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that... Um, Jesus came to reveal the truth. I, th I thank you that you sent prophets to reveal the truth about who you are and about who we are. Father, I thank you that you have preserved um, your word unto us and that we look now at Scripture as authoritative in our lives. And so, Father, I pray um, that as we look at this, um, this truth of Jesus' humanity, 
that it would really ultimately move us um, to worship you and to trust in Jesus, our, our big brother. Uh, and Father, ultimately, I pray that today would be all about your glory and your honor and the fame of your son. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So how many of you have ever wanted someone to be able to empathize with you? How many of you have ever wished that somebody could sort of enter into what it felt like to be you? Have you ever wanted that before, ever wished that? The truth is, um, all of us want that, right? Every single one of us wants to be understood, wants to be empathized with. Like, I wish somebody knew what it was like to be a five foot eight male. You know what I mean? Like, it would just be great. Like, if you could just walk into Gap and go, none of these pants fit me, I'm going to have to roll every single one of them, the pant legs up, you know? Right, just, just feel what it feels like to be me for a little while, right? Anyway, nobody looks for petite man. Like, petite women, great. Petite man, not so much. Right, some of you um, out there wish that somebody understood what it was like to be you, coming from the family that you came from. Your family may have been broken. It may have been a mess. And you kind of go, man, I just wish somebody understood what it was like to be me, you know, to understand the hardships that I've experienced. Um, some of you have experienced physical brokenness, right? Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's an injury. And, and sometimes you just wish, you know, if, if other people understood what it was like to be me, they would understand why I'm in a bad mood all the time, right? Or they would understand why their little, you know, trite uh, euphemisms and nice little sayings don't really work for me because I'm in pain constantly. I wish somebody could enter in and feel what it feels like to be me. So um, there is something called the age man suit. I read an article about this recently. And the age man suit is the suit that was developed first and foremost by medical uh, training. I think it developed in Germany first. Um, but essentially, these, um, these people who train people in medical school uh, wanted to help their students understand what it felt like to be, to be older, right, to be a geriatric patient, right? And so what they did is they created this suit that had all these different elements that made you feel sort of the weight and the pain and the struggle of age. Um, I'm going to read a little section of an article, and uh, the article talks us about it, tells us a little bit about it. It says this, how do you train a 20-something medical student to feel genuine empathy for senior citizens. Enter the age man suit. Consisting of ear protectors that stifle hearing, a yellow visor that blurs eyesight and makes it hard to distinguish colors, knee and elbow pads which stiffen the joints, a Kevlar jacket-style vest which presses uncomfortably against my chest, and padded gloves, the age man suit, which weighs around 10 kilograms, has been made to simulate the physical consequences of old age. Dr. Rachel Eckert from Berlin, Germany, helps strap the suit onto the med students as she tells them, welcome to old age. My aim is to turn young, energetic people into slow, creaking beings, temporarily at least, right? She's obviously not being particularly gentle in the way that she talks about aging, although it's true as I get older, I creak much more. The hardest thing I do every day, seriously, is put on my socks in the morning. It's totally bizarre. I'm not joking. Ask me, I'll tell you later. It's, a, it's an amazingly difficult process that involves lots of grunting and exhaling. It's true. And it's not because I'm chubby. It's because my back is stiff. Anyway, back to the article. That way, they will, I hope, develop a feeling for what it's like to be old. Eckert argues that there's a huge disconnect between large sections of the medical profession and their elderly patients, as well as a desperate lack of doctors willing to go into geriatric medicine. Rather than a PowerPoint presentation, this is the best way of giving them a real idea of what it's like to be old, she says. And only once 
Uh, and only once we have their empathy can we really begin to win students round to becoming interested in old people as patients. That's a cool idea. Ford, by the way, there's a next slide. Ford has done, begun doing the same thing um, in order to sort of help people, their designers, their engineers feel what it feels like to get in and out of cars, right? So they're realizing the importance of empathy. Now, empathy, again, like I said, um, for each of you matters, right? For being old, for being an engineer, it matters to be able to enter into someone's skin, if it, you know, as it were, and to feel what it feels like to be them physically, emotionally, intellectually, maybe even spiritually, right? It's something totally different, however, um, to become that person, like forever, you know, to feel those limitations always. Like, it's one thing to be able to take off that suit. It's another thing to have to be that person, Right. It's clear that Ford and these various, you know, medical um, companies and training schools understand the power of understanding what it's like to stand in someone else's shoes. But this idea isn't new. It's been around since the very beginning in the heart and the mind of God. It was called the incarnation. Right. That's part of what the Nicene Creed talks about. I'm going to turn your eyes up to the screen here. This idea of the incarnation. Um, that, that God entered into humanity, um, that God put on a suit of flesh in order to feel uh, what it feels like to be human, to experience uh, physical pain, right? To, to have a human intellect, to have a human will, to even have human emotions. In other words, God said, I want to become fully human in the person, the second person of my son, Jesus. And here the Nicene Creed, speaking of Jesus, says this, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate, that word literally means enfleshment, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. Right. So we know that the Nicene Creed written in 325 A.D., says this. It says that there's this scandalizing truth that God entered into humanity, that Jesus became fully human. But again, the question for us is not, does the church teach this, but does Scripture teach this? Does, does the Bible teach this? Let's take a look. So we're going to begin by taking a look at some scriptures that talk about the Jesus, the fact that Jesus uh, had a real human body. It wasn't a mirage. It wasn't an act, but it was a real human body that Jesus really became a human. John 1, 14 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We looked at the same John passage the other day, uh, last Sunday, that talked about not only Jesus' humanity, but also his divinity, that God became a human being, that he put on human flesh. He, he donned a human body. And it wasn't just before the resurrection, but it was after the resurrection. And here we read this. They were startled and frightened. This is when Jesus was appearing to the disciples after the resurrection. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, right? So this convinces you that Jesus' death was undeniable. They really witnessed it. They saw a spear go in the side, right? They, they saw the lifeless body. So when they saw Jesus again, they thought, surely it was a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. In other words, Jesus was fully human. So much so that Jesus 
felt fatigue, right? He experienced tiredness. Look at verse uh, 4, uh, sorry, chapter 4 of the book of John, verses 4 through 6. Now, in this passage, we see Jesus experiencing tiredness. Um, he, uh, this is the story where he runs into the woman at the well, and he's on a long journey. Um, he goes through an area of Samaria, and so you can just imagine, any of you who've ever walked 5, 10, you know, 12 miles, any of you who've ever run a marathon, you understand what it feels like. The journey that Jesus on was probably a three or four day walking journey. And he stops at this well, it says this, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground. Jacob had given his son to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, right? Feet hurting, your shins kind of aching, your calves hurting, your back hurting a little bit, right? Tired, covered with dust, tired as he was in his humanity. God was tired. He sat down by the well. It was about noon, right? So Jesus experienced what it felt like to be fatigued, to be tired. Not only that, but Jesus experienced thirst, Look at John 19. Again, this is written by the Apostle John, who spent um, three years walking with Jesus, knowing him. And this passage we're reading about is uh, while Jesus is on the cross, right? It's after he's been held prisoner for over a day, over 24 hours. Chances are he hasn't had anything to drink before they put him up there. It says this, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Again, God, entering into humanity, felt thirst. He felt what it felt like to be dehydrated and the headache that comes along with it. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked up a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. He experienced thirst. He experienced hunger. Listen to Matthew uh, chapter 4. This again is after Jesus um, has experienced the baptism of John, right? And, uh, and he goes into the wilderness where the Holy Spirit has led him. It says this. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, this is one of my favorite understatement sentences in Scripture, he was hungry, right? I'm going to be hungry at 1 o'clock today and cranky, right? Uh, after a Two days, if I looked at you, you'd be like one of those cartoons where you're a chicken leg with your own head on it. That's what you would look like to me. After 40 days, Jesus was probably famished, right? He experienced true hunger, right? The true hunger um, that people who go on hunger strikes feel. Now, the point in all of this is to say that Jesus became a fully physical human being. It wasn't an image. It wasn't a mirage. Jesus was a human being. The second person of the Trinity said, I'm entering into humanity. And not only did he get hungry, thirsty, and tired, I'm sure he hit his thumb with a hammer, and I'm sure he experienced real pain. I'm sure he got stomach aches and headaches like Bojo mentioned earlier, gnawing, growing pains, and sinus pressure. He got mosquito bites, cuts, and bruises. His feet hurt. His back was stiff from sleeping on the ground. Jesus became fully human, right? He entered into our humanity completely. And so what? So some of you are particularly aware of your physical brokenness, right? Some of you are aware of sicknesses that you have. Some of you are aware, acutely aware of other things that are wrong with you physically. It's important for you to understand that Jesus entered into physicality so that he could understand you and so that he could redeem your physicality. Listen to the words of Samuel Rutherford um, in his uh, sermon, The Trial and Triumph of Faith. He was a Scottish pastor. He would be of blood to us, 
not only come to the sick and to our bedside, in other words, Jesus just doesn't come alongside you when you're hurting physically, but would lie down and be sick, taking on him sick clay, and be in that condition of clay a worm and not a man, that he might pay our debts and would borrow a man's heart and bowels to sigh for us, man's eyes to weep for us, his spouses, that is the church's body, legs, and arms to be pierced for us, our earth, our breath, our life, our soul, that he might breathe out his life for us, a man's tongue and soul to pray for us, and yet he would remain God, that he might perfume the obedience of a high priest with heaven and give to justice blood that clamored in the veins and body of God in whom God had a personal lodging. See, what Samuel Rutherford is saying there is Jesus became fully human to suffer as a human, to obey the law as a human, to pay the debts of humanity as a human, and to die for humanity as a human. He understands what it's like to be you. He came to redeem physicality. He lived it all. Does that make sense? By the way, great quote there. It always makes me sort of feel insecure to read great great quotes like that because I'm so not quotable. But um, if you can't say it better, you just quote the guy. Anyway, so Jesus entered into our physicality, right? He experienced that. He also entered into um, humanity by experiencing human emotions. That's the second thing we're going to look at. So Jesus entered into us even donning human emotions. He had human emotions. Jesus experienced surprise, right? There's this great story of a centurion who was a Roman guy, an enemy of the Jews. The Roman guy had a a servant that he apparently valued and and loved, probably befriended. And he sent for Jesus and said, hey, will you please heal my servant? And then this is how the the centurion speaks. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it, right? And so this man, the centurion, has great faith in Jesus. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed, right? A human emotion. We don't think about God being amazed because God's God. Like he knew what you're going to do ahead of time. But the idea of Jesus' humanity and divinity is that Jesus had two natures. He had a divine nature, but he had a human nature too. And in Jesus' humanity, I realize it's a total mystery. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. He was shocked. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus experienced surprise. He also experienced sadness, right? Here's the story of Lazarus. You know the story of Lazarus, Jesus' friend who died. Um, When Jesus saw her weeping, that is uh, Mary, one of the sisters, Lazarus' sisters, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That's a great word. And the word is actually embromenos. It's used of a bull, when a bull sort of snorts and rages, right? And so Jesus saw death firsthand in the life of his friend. And it says he was raging like a bull. He was sad, right, at this loss of of his friend, of death entering into perfect creation. It says, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. In his humanity, God in the form of Jesus, experienced sadness. The night of Jesus' arrest, we see the same thing. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray, right? He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, right? If you guys remember the story, they all fell asleep. They were supposed to be supporting him in prayer. 
And it says, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. How many of you guys have ever been so sad, so sorrowful, so broken, so troubled that it feels like you're going to die, right? Have you ever felt that before? You know, maybe it was in sixth grade when that first girlfriend broke up with you, right? And you're listening to Chicago 17, right? Or maybe Adele, or I don't know who, I don't know who people are listening to these days on your iPod. And, uh, you know, and your, your heart's breaking, right? Jesus felt that sorrow. Maybe it was when your parents got divorced, right? And you experienced a sor- sorrow and a sadness. It just felt like it was going to crush your heart within you. Jesus felt overwhelmed with sorrow. He entered into you. He experienced human emotions just like we experience. He also experienced anger, right? When Jesus cleansed the temple, we don't know what to do with that, right? It makes us feel uncomfortable to kind of go, ooh, I thought we weren't supposed to get angry, but that's not what the scripture says. Scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. There's such a thing as righteous anger. And here, this is what Jesus did. He experienced righteous anger, defending the honor of his father, but also defending the rights of the Gentiles who were supposed to be praying in this particular part of the temple. It says this, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. He'd be shouting at this point. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus experienced righteous anger. How many of you have experienced anger, right? Who knows what your anger is about, but there's lots of reasons to be righteously anger, angry. Jesus came into human flesh in order to experience the very emotions that you have. He experienced sadness. He experienced anger. He experienced love, right? You guys know the story maybe of the rich young ruler. There's what seems to be a sincere young man, religious guy who had some money that came up to Jesus and wanted to know what it was, was required to be saved. And Jesus um, tells him, all right, well, you know, keep all the commandments. In verse 20 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus, the young man responds to Jesus by saying, teacher, he declared, all these commandments, that is, I have kept since I was a boy. And listen to how Jesus responds. It says this, Jesus looked at him and loved him, right? How many of you would desire for God to look at you and love you? Right? Do you believe that God can look at you and love you? Right? Knowing that God knows the sins that you've committed, the pages you visited on your website, right? the things that you've thought about your friends, right? the things that you've said over um, text messaging. Right? He knows all of those things, right? But how many of you would love to hear the fact that God looks at you and loves you? And this man went away, right? We don't know what happened to him, but yet Jesus looked at him and loved him. In Jesus' humanity, he loved this young man. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Not only did Jesus experience love, he experienced joy. Listen to the words of Hebrews 12. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, archagos, and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Right? In other words, um, your sin wasn't a barrier to Jesus' work in your life. Your sin was the very reason 
for God's work in your life. This is the very reason that he came into human flesh, to die upon the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, the joy of seeing you not only come into a relationship with his father, but the joy of seeing you become the human being that he created you to be. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he did everything that was required to make you right with God and to make you into the human being that you want to be and that he wants you to be. John Calvin had a great summary for what Jesus did. It says this, Christ has put on our feelings along with our flesh. He experienced flesh, he experienced physicality, but he also experienced emotions, right? Two more sections. The Bible teaches us that not only did Jesus enter in fully into those two other areas, but that Jesus even had a human mind, right? So he had a divine mind and a human mind. It's a mystery. Jesus experienced intellectual growth, right? So Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus, Luke sets out to write the most comprehensive narrative. Uh, he goes about investigating how to write about Jesus, what Jesus did, what the disciples had to say. And here's part of what Luke has to say in his gospel. Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. Now, how in the world does God increase in wisdom? I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a mystery, right? But it's evidence that Jesus entered into our humanity fully, even putting on a human mind that could increase in wisdom. He also experienced intellectual limitation. Listen to Mark chapter 13. This is one of the most tricky Bible verses. People always run into this. They don't know what to do with it. Part of the reason they don't know what to do with it is because they're trying to find an answer. And the truth is, it's just more complicated than that, right? So this is after or when Jesus predicts the temple's destruction in 70 AD and also talks about his return. And he says this, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I've got a human mind just like you, and at the moment, I don't know when God, when, when Jesus, when I am returning, right? I don't even know that time that's in my Father's hands. This is all mysterious stuff, but the reason it matters is because Jesus entered into your experience intellectually, emotionally, and physically, right? Some of you might feel like your mind is the most acute area of your brokenness, right? Maybe, maybe you struggle with anxiety, right? You know, maybe you struggle with doubts. I don't know what it is intellectually or mentally that you go through, but Jesus put on humanity so much so that he even had a human mind. He surely was tempted with doubts, right? He surely was tempted with anxiety. He went through all of these things just like you go through, and yet Hebrews tells us that he was without sin, right? So Jesus put on human flesh. He had a body. He took on human emotions. He took on a human mind. The Bible also teaches us that Jesus even entered into humanity so much so that he had a human will, right? Jesus experienced submitting to the will of his Father. So Jesus had to submit his human will to God's divine will. Now, after the feeding of the 5,000, which we read about in the book of Matthew, um, I'm sorry, in the book of John, John chapter 6, the, uh, this crowds come around to find Jesus on the other side of the lake. And here's what Jesus says. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, my human will, because what does our human will want? Our human will does not want to go to the cross, right? Our human will does not want to deal with all these people, right? They stink, they are demanding, they're crabby, you know, I can't trust them, right? Our human will doesn't want that. 
But what Jesus says, not to do my own will as a human being, but the will of him who sent me. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus submitted his will to the will of his heavenly father. Even Jesus talks about this as he's praying to his father in Matthew chapter 26. This is the night before he goes to the cross. And Jesus says, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, what I will is for this to happen some other way, right? I don't really want to die on the cross. I don't want to really have a, a crown of thorns on my head. I don't really want to be beaten. I don't really want to be shamed publicly. I don't want any of that stuff. I don't really desire that, right? But at the end of the day, it's not my will, but as you will for me. Does that make sense? He submitted his will to his heavenly father's will. That's, that's good news because guess what? Most of us do not submit our wills regularly to the will of the heavenly father. Most of us just do whatever we want to do when we want to do it. And then we justify it in whatever way we possibly can. The good news is that Jesus didn't do that, that Jesus obeyed perfectly exactly where you and I do not obey perfectly, exactly where we disobey. Jesus submitted his will to the divine will of his heavenly father. Jesus also experienced altering his will for other people. Now, this is kind of earth shattering as well. So Jesus is on his way to heal a synagogue leader's daughter. So a synagogue was this you know, Jewish place of worship. This guy was probably an enemy of Jesus at some level, but his daughter got sick. And so all of a sudden that sort of became less meaningful. And he said, hey, Jesus, can you please heal my daughter? She's really sick. And so Jesus says, sure, I'll come, I'll do it. And it says this, as they were kind of on their way, it says a large crowd followed and pressed around him, that is Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She's desperate, right? Utterly desperate. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering, right? She had a plan. She had a will. She exercised it. And it says this, at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Jesus' will is to go heal the synagogue leader's daughter. He's, he's hurrying on his way. And in the midst of hurrying on his way, this crowd is pressed around him, and he pauses for a moment, right? He, he stops his will in order to respond to the will, the desire, the desperation of someone else. It says this, he turned around in the crowd, he stopped, and he asked, who touched my clothes, right? He stopped what he was doing, right? He stopped his agenda in order to pay attention to this, this woman's agenda. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, the reason this is radical, the reason this is scandalous, scandalous is because God, right, the son who entered into humanity had a will and he allowed his will, what he was doing, to be altered by a human being, a desperate woman, right? So how many of us in our desperation turn to God, turn to Jesus and to pray, right? I mean, what are we doing? What are we, what are we asking God, the son, God, the human being to do? What we're asking God to do is we're saying, look, I don't know what your will is right now, but right now it seems to be going this direction. My wife seems like she's getting ready to leave me. 
You know, my child looks like they're getting ready to go into the deep end. This cancer looks like it's going to win, right? And, and so what I'm asking you, Jesus, is I'm asking you right now to stop and to listen to me. I don't know what it is you're doing sitting on the throne of heaven, but would you please stop for a minute and listen to me? Will you pause your will for a moment and listen to my desperation and listen to my will? What we're promised is we have a great high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. We have a great high priest who's able to stop and to hear our concerns, our cries of desperation. And not only that, again, part of what Jesus is doing here is he's entering in to obey perfectly exactly where we fail. Some of you, some of us have experienced our greatest levels of brokenness in the area of our will. You know, maybe it's around food. Maybe it's a food addiction. You know, maybe it's a lack of discipline, right? Who knows what it is, but Jesus came to redeem our wills and to substitute his perfect will for our sinful will. He entered in completely. Does that make sense? And so the question about all of this is, all right, so what does it really matter that God entered into humanity? What, what's the big deal? Why couldn't, it, why couldn't he just appear to be a man? Why couldn't God have just said, I'm going to kind of look like a person, right? Well, it matters for three reasons. One, it matters because of divine redemption. So divine redemption is this, that God entered into humanity in order to redeem, to make right, to rescue every aspect of your being. Okay, God entered into to rescue and redeem every aspect of your humanity, of our humanity, right? Your, your, your heart that desires things that it probably shouldn't desire, right? Or sometimes it wants one thing more than it should and another thing not enough. Jesus had a perfect heart, and that perfect heart substitutes for yours. You know, sometimes it's our minds. You know, our minds trick us. We are filled with anxiety, right? We don't know what we believe. We doubt. Jesus substitutes his perfect mind for your imperfect mind. It redeems your mind, right? Not only that, but our bodies, our wills, all of these things that have so often failed us, Jesus enters in to redeem our mind, our heart, our body, right? Every aspect of our humanity, Listen to the words of Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, or another way might be to say the redemption of our humanity. Like, I know who I'm supposed to be, but I know that I'm not who I'm supposed to be, right? And so we long to be who God created us truly to be. And that's part of what the incarnation offers us is that God will redeem us so that we're exactly who he created us to be. So, so first of all, divine redemption, but also divine empathy. Bojo mentioned that earlier. God entered into humanity in order to empathize with us in our weakness, right? So listen to the words of Hebrews 4.14. It's exactly what, what we read earlier. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way. Let me just let that sink in for a minute. How have you been tempted? Just think about it that way, Right? We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. How have you been tempted? You just think about it for a second. How have you been tempted? All right, what Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus, by entering into your humanity, God 
by entering into your humanity, has been tempted in every way that you have been tempted. Right? That's, that's entering in to your humanity. Right? Just as we are, you are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's great news to know that God the Son entered into humanity so much so that he would experience every single temptation that you've experienced so that when you go to Jesus, your great high priest, you can say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner, right? And he understands your weakness, divine empathy, so divine redemption, divine empathy, and then a divine model, right? A divine example. Because God entered into our humanity, we must enter into other people's humanity as well, right? Listen to Philippians 2. It says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you, to the interests of the others in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. In other words, if Jesus, if God, the son can enter into humanity, whatever, whatever level of step down that happens to be, then part of what we need to do is we need to step down into other people's humanity as well. People that are very different than us. People that are suffering in ways that we've never suffered in, right? People who are troubled in ways that we've never been troubled in. If it was true that, that Jesus had to enter into our humanity, how much more so should we enter into the humanity of our children, of our wives and husbands, of our professors, of our roommates, of our parents? What does it look like for us to be incarnational with other people. Listen to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Through fellowship and communion with the incarnate Lord, he's talking about Jesus, we recover our true humanity. We're, we're being made more like who we're supposed to be. And at the same time, we're delivered from that individualism, which is the consequence of sin and the consequence of the 21st century, by the way, and retrieve our solidarity with the whole human race. By being partakers of Christ incarnate, we are partakers in the whole humanity which he bore. We now know that we have been taken up and born in the humanity of Jesus, and therefore that new nature we now enjoy means that we too must bear the sins and sorrows of others, right? It's not enough just to go, wow, that's great that Jesus entered into humanity to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience. Um, we have to jump into other people's humanity as well. That's part of us following the model of our big brother, Jesus, right? As he was incarnate to us. And not only that, but we know that we have divine redemption, that every aspect of your brokenness has been declared righteous in Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, but also that you'll be made fully complete one day to be the human being that God created you to be. Jesus came to practically redeem you and to restore you. And then finally, maybe the best news of all is just to know that God, the Son, knows what it's like to be you, that divine empathy. I guess I would just ask that you would allow this mystery of the incarnation um, to sink down through your head, maybe down deep into your hearts, that it might even change the way that you live. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, this is um, 
these are giant truths, a giant truth that um, have stymied theologians and philosophers along with um, parents and uh, middle school teachers. And yet, Father, we believe it to be true even though we can't understand it. Um, And so, Father, I thank you that your son, Jesus, entered into humanity um, to redeem us, um, to redeem me. I thank you that your son entered into humanity in order to understand what it's like to be me. Father, I thank you that um, as I look at Jesus, um, that I can see a calling for my life, that I might be incarnational uh, with those that are different than me. Father, I pray that uh, you would give me the ability to do that um, through your power in me, through your spirit. Father, I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.